Well, one thing that little children figure out very early in life is that parents make rules. Something else they figure out very early in life, when mom or dad give a rule, they really want to know why. Don't jump on the couch. Why? Stop playing with the Legos, please, and put your jacket on. Why? Don't throw the toilet paper in the bath water. Why? Now, when they're young and learning to live well under wise parental authority, sometimes it is just fine to reply, because daddy said so, and you need to obey daddy's word. But as kids mature, it becomes more and more important to also explain the reason behind the rule. It helps kids obey when they understand the why. Now, God also makes rules for His children. He's the perfectly good Father. And His children, hopefully many of us, we are learning also to live well under His wise authority. Now, sometimes He just issues us a command. And even if we don't perfectly understand it, He does expect us to obey because He is God and we are not. He is the Father. We are the children. But usually He lays out for us the reasons for his will. He, he knows us to obey when we have insight into the why. That's what we have before us in our passage of Scripture today. Because God is giving, in 1 Corinthians 6, he's giving a big command, a huge command, using as his messenger our, our big brother Paul. And this rule, it's colossal. It's an absolute unit of a command. Flee sexual immorality. But he doesn't just say it. He gives three excellent and compelling reasons why we must. And it's good for this cocky Corinthian church, so sure of themselves, so confident in their own wisdom, but actually so out of line about so many things. It's good for them to hear the why. But what about us this morning? Living in these United States in the early 21st century, might our church be in need of a refresher as to why sexual sin is such a big deal? Why it's so destructive? Is it possible that you yourself need to hear why sexual immorality is dangerous? Dangerous enough that it can lead your soul to hell. And why, therefore, you must flee from it. I think we need to hear this word. Friends, I entreat you, listen to the word of God as it speaks to us this morning. Please turn your Bibles now to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians in the New Testament... Chapter 6, if you're using one of the blue Bibles from the seats in front of you, you can find this passage on page 955. We're going to start reading verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. 
Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Get into the details here. I want you to understand a few big picture things, and then we're going to dive down into the nitty-gritty. Merry Advent. We're talking about sexual morality. <laughs> the first thing you should know is that first century Corinth was a highly society. Does that sound familiar? Opportunities to engage in sexually immoral behavior abounded. Prostitution readily available. And it was just the expectation in Greco-Roman society that men of a certain social class had their wives... But then they also had mistresses and concubines. That was just fine. And this is the culture that the Gentile Christians in Corinth were coming out of. Second thing to know. Greco-Roman philosophy made a pretty big distinction between that which was physical and that which is spiritual. So the body, the body, that was earthly and fleshly and kind of crummy and pathetic. But the spirit, now that's where that was at. The spirit is exalted and pure and beautiful and sublime. So, with this great big huge distinction between the physical and the spiritual, they thought that what you did with your body might not actually have a lot to do with what you did with your spirit. And that's the prevailing ethic, and that's the prevailing worldview in the city of Corinth. Now think back to what we've learned from earlier chapters. That's the environment they're in. Now think back. How has the Corinthian church been doing at making sure the pagan culture doesn't influence them and steer them in the wrong direction? Have they been doing a very good job of that so far? No. No, not so hot. They've been letting the culture's worldview, especially its ideas about wisdom, what's wise, what's powerful, what's influential, that's been seeping into the church. And it's got their minds off of Jesus. It's got their minds off of the cross of Jesus. And it has them embrace the system again. And guess what? It's going to happen here as well. Okay, one last thing to know. It seems like the Corinthian church, they had a few slogans. 
kind of like catchphrases that they were fond of using with one another. Our church has them too. BJ has a ton of catchphrases. I just couldn't remember any of them. I have a catchphrase. I'm going to use it later. Uh, Paul knows their catchphrases. He doesn't really like what they're doing with them, though. So in this passage, it's going to be a couple times where he's going to quote their own slogans back to them and say, yeah, but not really. So some of these things are going to be things they're bringing to the table, and now he's going to refute them or at least at least tweak them. So with all that background information, hope you stayed with me there, we're ready to dive into verse 12. By the way, that there is a bulletin insert in your uh, outline, that, an outline in your bulletin that might be helpful as you just think through these different sections. First, we're going to look at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. That's a catchphrase. All things are lawful for me. I think they were really, really fond of this one. The Corinthians were proud of their liberty in Christ. They were proud of having been set free from the law. In fact, he's going to return to this catchphrase in chapter 10 because they were saying it about other stuff as well. They were just excited at how much, how much liberty they had in Christ. How proud were you? Were they? Well, proud enough that some of the men in the church were arguing that Christian liberty gave them the right to sleep with prostitutes. That's how proud they were of their liberty. They were saying, man, yeah, I'm free in Christ. I can go to that banquet and participate in whatever happens afterwards. That's probably what some of them were doing. Now, Paul does not deny that Christian freedom is a true and wonderful reality. Nevertheless, remember what he just got done saying in verses 9 and 10, which comes right before this chapter, right before our passage and is actually linked to it. Just look up, verse 9. Do you not know, he says, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. But what did he start with? Not the sexually immoral. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. So let's see. John talked to us in the course seminar today about context is king. Let's let context help us. All things are lawful for me. Could that include the ongoing practice of homosexual or sorry of, of sexual immorality could that be part of the all things that are lawful hmm well verse 9 says that if you do and practice those things you won't inherit the kingdom of god so no i guess sexual immorality cannot be included under the phrase all things are lawful after all one commentator says it would be really really odd Apostle to argue that going to hell was lawful, just not expedient. Like, that just doesn't make any sense. That's not mine, I got it from a commentary. Brothers and sisters, Christian liberty is not the same as license to sin. It's not heavenly diplomatic immunity. It's freedom to do whatever you want, freedom to do whatever feels good to you, freedom to give yourself a break today. It's actually freedom to do as you ought. 
It's not freedom to do anything you want. It's freedom to do as you ought. And Paul even implies that sometimes things that are not wicked in and of themselves can still be unhelpful. Sometimes things that are not sinful in and of themselves can even be enslaving. Yeah, he says, not all things are helpful. I don't want to be dominated by anything. Now, stop right there, because that gives us some new questions. That gives us new questions. The world asks, and I think we're tempted to ask, when we consider a particular behavior, what's wrong with doing this? What's wrong with this? Who's it going to harm? Who's it going to hurt? The gospel would have us ask different questions. The gospel would, would say we ought to ask, what's right about this? Is doing this going to be helpful to me in my discipleship? Is doing this going to be beneficial and helpful to others? Well, that turns the question around, it, doesn't it? It's not just, is, am I considering doing something and, and is there going to be, you know, who's, who's going to be hurt by it? It's actually saying, who's going to be helped by this? If not, do I really need to be participating in it? Friends, it's just worth asking the question, is there anything that you're involved in currently that might not be sinful in itself, but it's hindering you in your pursuit of Jesus? It's not helping you. It might not even be anything in and of itself wrong, but for you... It's unhelpful. Because there are things in this life, friends, that are permissible, but not good for you individually. Not such that I could stand up here in the pulpit and say, you shall not do X. But something that you might come to the conclusion, that thing is not helping me toward Jesus. Why would I continue? Is the Christian life really so easy that, that I can that I want to do it with like one hand tied behind my back? Do you find the Christian life that easy that you want to do it, go through it like that? Yeah, some things just aren't helpful. Some things can be dominating for us as individuals. Let's move on. Verse 13 brings us to another Corinthian catchphrase. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach is meant for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. I think extends out that far, one more phrase than the ESV gives it. And what they're saying here is, listen, God's given us our bodily appetites. We're we're meant to satisfy them. And at the end of the day, it doesn't really much matter how we do that, because when God wraps everything up, he's going to do away with all that physical stuff anyway. So in this life, now, I get hungry i got to go eat, right? So, same way, if I desire sex, I go get sex. It's the same thing, and it's really not all that big a deal. And Paul would say to them, what are you talking about? Sex is not the equivalent of eating a meal. And your body is not just something you use a tool you use to satisfy your appetites. Your body is something much more precious. Look at the end of verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, 
but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Friends, your body has a purpose. You did not give it that purpose. It has a purpose based on the fact that you are created in his image. Your body the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus, if you're in him, is at work right now to sanctify your body, to make it holy. And he has made it the dwelling place of his spirit. And that's why using your body for sexual immorality is a huge deal. It's, it's taking that which is supposed to be given over wholly for the Lord's use. That's what my body is. Thing to be given over wholly for the Lord's use and instead giving it over to sin. And Paul doesn't allow the Corinthian believers the, the out that says, well, all this physical stuff is going to be obsolete anyway, right? My body's going to die. It's going to go into the ground. You know, I don't know what's going to happen to it at the end, but you know, yeah, yeah, it doesn't really matter. It's the spiritual that really matters. Who cares what I'm going to do with my old body? Paul says, no. No, that's not it at all. God is not going to do away with your physical body on the last day. No, he's going to raise it from the dead. He's going to transform it. He's going to glorify it. He's going to make it like his son's own resurrection body and fill it with eternal life and fit it for the new heavens and the new earth so that it can be made to know God and to enjoy him forever and ever and ever and ever in glory. That's the destiny of your physical body if you're in Christ. I said to the Iwana kids the other day, you know, I think that if, if I were to meet you as you will be if you're in Jesus, after he's resurrected from the dead, I think I'd be tempted to worship you. That's how glorious we're going to be. That's how glorious we're going to be. That's a Lewis. That's a Lewis quote. Such glory is going to be given to our mortal bodies when they have taken on immortality. So be careful what you do with your body now. Use it in the Lord's service, not in the service of sin, because it has a great and wonderful destiny. And now, friends, we've seen the first reason that God wants his children to obey his command. Why must you and I flee sexual immorality? It's because what we do with our bodies really matters. You are an embodied creature. God made you that way. And God is going to finally redeem you as an embodied creature. Your whole self, including your body, is part of God's great redemption plan. So use it well now. Don't use it for Don't use it for what's going to dominate you. And what's more unhelpful and more dominating than sexual sin? Don't use it for that. Use your body for the Lord. That's the first reason. That's the first reason why we must flee sexual immorality. Here's the second. Because it's just unthinkable to unite Jesus with sin. It's unthinkable to unite Jesus with sin. Read verses 15 through 17 again with me. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. 
Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. I used to, I used to be a math teacher. I don't know if you knew that. One of the principles of mathematics is the, the transitive law. The transitive law says, if A equals B, and B equals C, then what's true about A and C? They're equal too. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. And Paul says something's going on like that right here. See, what happened when I when I became a Christian, when I repented of my sins and believed in Jesus Christ, I was joined to Jesus Christ. I was united to him. I became one with him spiritually. And my identity, fundamentally, my fundamental identity is now that I'm in Christ. Who is Brad Parker? He's a man in Christ. And my body, therefore, says Paul, is a member of Christ. Now shall, shall I take my body, which is united with Jesus, and go over here and join it to the body of a prostitute. My body is already united to Jesus. Shall I unite it also with a harlot? What does... Well, it takes the members of Christ. The members of Christ are taken to the prostitute and made members of her. I'm joined to Jesus in holiness and joined to her in sin at the same time. That joins and links Jesus with sin. That's unthinkable. It's horrific. It should never, ever be. And this, of course, would apply to any any sexual union with someone who's not your spouse, not just a prostitute. At that, for this church, at that time, the were arguing they had the freedom to solicit. But God's same logic... Paul's same logic would apply to fornication, would apply to homosexuality, it would apply to young people looking to lose their virginity before the wedding ring. It'd apply to adultery. How can a believer united with Jesus bring him into the bedroom and there unite themselves to someone they have no right to through a sinful sexual encounter? God forbid that that should happen. Now someone might say, okay, I get that, I understand that. But I'm not uniting myself to anyone I'm not supposed to. I'm just looking at a picture on the screen. What about that? Yeah, we have to think about pornography, don't we? Because in an that's the situation that's most likely to tempt believers into sexual immorality. I mean, if we lived in Vegas, maybe. But I, I just don't know of many prostitution rings running in Georgia, you know. That's not going to be most likely where we get lured. It's going to be through our devices. That's how we at RGC are probably the most vulnerable. So let me say this. How would I apply this idea to our situation. 
while accessing pornography does not create the same one-flesh union that a full-bodied sexual encounter does. That's true. However, let's think about it this way. If you're in Christ, if you're united to Him by faith, then you are still bringing Jesus with you when you gratify your lusts in front of a screen. And that's still appalling. It's still appalling that we would bring the holiness of Jesus into into contact with the unholiness of what's on that screen. Brothers, sisters, increasingly you're not immune to this either and increasingly being targeted. Let us free the evils of pornography as well. Do not use pornography to take what belongs to Christ, your own body, and give it over to sexual sin. It's horrific. We mustn't. Now let's listen to the third reason why a Christian must flee sexual immorality. And it's, it's simple. Because you don't own you. You don't own you. God does. Look at verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other, per, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So here we come just to the the command bluntly stated, flee from sexual immorality. Run away. Make tracks. Get out of dodge. Put distance between yourself and temptation. Take steps to remove yourself from opportunities for sin. Running away from immorality is not cowardice. It's wisdom. One commentator said this, it is neither clever nor courageous to put your head into the lion's mouth and then pray fervently that it won't be bitten off. That's stupid. Let's well, here's hypotheticals, make the adjustments for your own situation. You got to pl- flee from problematic situations with real live people. I think he actually has Potiphar's wife and Joseph in his mind with this. If there's a friend, apply this to you, if there's a friend at work who you feel increasingly drawn to because they really get you, really understand you, maybe unlike how you feel your spouse understands you, and you find yourself often just making excuses to go be with that person, wandering over to their workspace without any particular reason, listen, you've got to give it up. You gotta give it up. Start avoiding that person's company. Make sure you're never alone. It isn't legalism. That's wisdom. You're vulnerable. You gotta flee problematic situations with virtual people. Are there certain books? Are there certain shows? Are there certain movies that leave you vulnerable to the explicit thoughts? You've got to cancel the channel. Cancel the magazine subscription. Cancel cable. When the issue is pornography and the problem is severe, you might need to cancel the internet. 
get rid of your smartphone and get a dumb phone. They still exist. Oh, I couldn't possibly need it for such and such and such and such. Really? Really? You're telling me that you need more than you need to obey the Lord's command? What did Jesus say? It's, it's better to lose your eye or your hand than to be thrown into hell. And that smartphone starts looking pretty expendable by comparison. Do what it will take. Of course, one super practical and necessary step in fleeing immorality is to be discreetly transparent and open with other believers. If you're struggling with sexual sin, you have to bring it into the light. This sin especially loves the darkness. But in the fight against sin, God doesn't intend for you to fight it alone. Bring it. Bring it out into the light. Bring it to a trusted and faithful brother, faithful sister. Bring it to an elder. Bring it to a pastor. Bring it to one of their wives. Ideally not a spiritual peer. Better for it to be someone farther along in Christ. Let it be someone with wisdom and skill in these matters. Someone who can counsel you and help you and pray for you and encourage you, if needed, warn you and rebuke you. Here's an example. I thought this sounded helpful. I read an article this week of a person who's vulnerable, a believer, a Christian, who is vulnerable to pornography. It was a lady, actually. And she has a sister in Christ. And she can just text a specific emoji, right? One of those little pictures on your texting. She can text the specific emoji that they've agreed upon when she's feeling drawn to something spiritual. That's all she has to do. Just the emoji, send. And she, when she reaches out like that, we'll begin to pray for her or call her or do something to help her in that moment of need. I thought that was helpful. However it is, Get help. Get your brothers and sisters on board. Get your brother, sister, you understand, on board so that you can actually flee effectively. We've got to flee immorality. Now look at what Paul's last reason is. What does he give as the reason for this? He says flee. Why? It's because the sexually immoral person sins against his own body in a unique way. And why is that? It's because our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. A Christian's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And sexual sin... Imagine imagine the Old Testament going like the Holy of Holies, right? The very presence of God right there. Imagine bringing a prostitute into the Holy of Holies. Unthinkable. And yet in the same way, when we, whose bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, engage in sexual immorality, something similar and something that awful is going on. I mean, this is, this is amazing. It's amazing. Think about it. By nature, I am a sinful man. I once was filled with all manner of unrighteousness and unholiness. But as we saw last week, that's not who I am anymore. I have believed in Jesus. His blood shed on the cross has washed away my sin. Verse 11 tells me so. Look at verse 11. But you were washed. 
Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I'm now holy. I'm now purified, such that God can now dwell in me. This body, 42 years old, graying hair, bit of a gut, is a temple in which the Holy Spirit lives. The holy presence of God has taken up residence in me. If you're in Jesus, he's taken up residence in you as well. I've been consecrated. I've been set apart for his use. How now shall I defile the temple of the holy God with sexual immorality? By way of an aside, given that we live in 2022, please note that what brings defilement to the temple is sin. It's not anything else. Now, in our day, there's plenty of well-meaning people, even Christian people, that will tell you that, you know, you mustn't defile the temple of your body. And what defiles it is processed food. Or what defiles it is refined sugar. Or insufficient... Or vat... Or gluten. Or whatever... Now, don't mishear me. There may be a place for discussion of those things. But please, don't use this verse. Don't use this verse. This is not what Paul is talking about here. Food does not defile the temple of the Holy Spirit. Even if that food is Oreos, or French fries, or marshmallow peeps. (laughs) And getting it. And consuming only healthy foods, laudable as that might be, is not what it means to preserve the holiness of the temple. We're not all about physical health. We're about about holiness. God wants you righteous. Don't play into this culture's obsession with physical health and decide that that's where the fight for true godliness is. God wants you righteous, not keto. Nothing wrong. Nothing wrong with keto. He wants you righteous. What he wants from you, brothers and sisters, is he wants you holy. You're not your own. You belong to God. He has redeemed you. He has bought you with the immense cost of the blood of his precious son. And he has put his spirit within you. His Holy Spirit. His own possession. As if you have stamped right on here on your cross your forehead, rightful property of God Almighty, holy to the Lord. You're His. You're not your own. What does this mean? It means you don't have any more rights to, over yourself to do body. That belongs to Him. You're under obligation to glorify Him with that body. You don't get to live for you. You now live for Him. And obviously that means gratify your sexual desire, your sexual appetite, just however you want. You have to obey Him. You have to put that in submission to Him. You have to be mastered by Him to glorify Him with your sexuality. for For the unmarried believer, that means chastity with contentment until such time as God provides you with a spouse. And God will give you grace for this because He is good, and he is enough.
That's not all I could say about that. That's more. There's more. But let's leave it at that. God is good and He is enough for you. For the married believer, it means faithfulness and enjoyment and delight and pleasure in the spouse that God has given you as His good gift. Not the spouse you might wish they were. The spouse that He's given you as His good gift. For all believers... This means keeping our bodies in holiness and self-control. Not giving in to sexual sin, but fleeing from sexual immorality. It also means embracing who God in His good wisdom has made you, whether man or woman. You're not your own. You're doubly His. He made you. That's true of everyone in this room. He bought you. That's true of you who are believers. And because you are His, not your own, you don't get to override His good and wise decision. They born either a girl or a boy. He created your particular body for His glory and He chose well for you. He loves you. He likes you. And that includes your body, which he is planning one day to glorify. He is your loving father, and you can trust him with his decision. Now, I want to speak a word to non-Christians who are here. What if you're not in Christ this morning? I would say that the reason you're not in Christ is because you do not want Jesus to be master over you. You don't want him ruling over you. You somehow want to be your own master because you think that that's the path of real freedom. The freedom to do whatever it is that you want. But will you let me tell you something? Your freedom is an illusion. You're not actually free. The Bible says that you are actually held captive to a cruel power that has you enslaved. You're under the power, under the dominion, under the authority of sin. And He's your master. He hates you. He will not willingly release you from His tyranny. He will do whatever He can to keep you under His power. Now, how can you experientially that that's true? That's what the Word of God says. That ought to be enough. But do you need more? Well, for one, the Word of God says it. But for another... I mean, I'll acknowledge that you, you can do many things. You're free to do many things. But there's free to do. You're not free. You cannot consistently do what is right. You cannot love the way you should... You cannot live the way you know that you ought. I give you the benefit of the doubt. You try to do what is right, but you just can't manage it. One practical example from this text that might apply to many of you. You know, you know you ought not to give yourself to sexual sin. But you simply can't stop yourself. And you're enslaved to some pattern of lust, maybe porn. Maybe infidelity, maybe masturbation. Things that cause you shame, but which you just seem to not be able to stop yourself. And you keep going back. 
Friends, that's not freedom. That's the power of sin. And that's what has you by the throat. Your freedom is illusive. It's an illusion. But there is a way out. There's a way out of this chokehold. There's one who will set you free, who is willing and able to set you free from this cruel master who hates you. That man is Jesus Christ. He is God's holy son who was sent into the world by the Father to set captives free, which he did by dying on the cross. His blood is the ransom payment for sin. Powerful, good enough, Excellent enough to set any sinner free, no matter the heinousness of their sin. It is the price. Jesus' blood is the price of slavery. Because anyone, including you, who will look to Jesus, in Him, and trust His sacrifice on the cross as the price of their freedom, will be saved. Will be released from their captivity, will finally be free to do what is right. Now, no false advertising. Jesus does not set you free from the devil and then send you on your way to be your own master. It's not that kind of freedom. No, rather, he binds you to himself. He will take you for his own. He will be master now. That's non-negotiable. He gets to call the shots. But his rule is so different. His rule is for your good. He loves those who are his own. Him is true freedom. And once you are his, all that he ever wants for you is what's best for your eternal happiness. So I'm calling you. Actually, he's calling you. To come, to come, you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to him for rest. Come under his lordship because that is what's good for you. It's what you were made for. Come to him. Well, as we close, I want to just give you who belong to Christ, my brothers and sisters, I want to give you some summary principles from this passage. As you and I together, as a church, as individuals, as we seek to obey God's call to sexual immorality, and as we seek to embrace a life that's devoted to glorifying Him. Not in your bulletin, they're just short principles. Sexual sin is utterly unhelpful to us as we work out our salvation. Sexual sin is enslaving it will bring you back under an authority that is hostile to you and hostile to Jesus. Sexual sin tells lies about our union. It lies and says we can be joined to Jesus and joined to evil at the same time. Sexual sin defiles the dwelling place of God's spirit, the body of his people. Sex is special. Two people because it's a giving of the whole person. And therefore, there's no such thing as sex. So never, ever think that you can dabble in immorality with another person and leave with them unscathed and you unscathed. It'll never happen. 
Sexual sin tells lies about who we belong to. We belong to God. But when we engage in sexual immorality, we declare that we're giving ourselves away to someone else, someone with no right to us. And if you reach back to last week's passage, an unrepentant pattern of sexual sin will lead you to hell. It doesn't matter what you profess. It doesn't matter that you're baptized. An unrepentant life of sexual sin will lead you to hell. This, all these things are why we must flee its evil. But now, consider instead the good that God gives in place of this. Jesus has redeemed you with His own blood. You were purchased by God. You were purchased by God at great cost. That means you're His forever. And you've got to live in accordance with that reality. That means you don't own yourself. You don't get to live for you. Now you live for Him. And it's a beautiful, wonderful thing to belong, not to yourself, but to Him. It really does matter what you do with your body now because God cares about it and will one day resurrect it in glory. Your sexuality is not your own such that you can do with it what you wish. Instead, your sexuality is a wonderful gift to be used under authority, God's authority and, in fact, your spouse's authority. More on that in January. You were created for a purpose and you were redeemed for a purpose and that purpose is to glorify God. So let me encourage you in something. I think it would be a helpful thing if you, if I, were to take time, especially if we're fighting particular sins, to stop periodically and ask yourself, is what I'm Right now, glorifying God as a check against unprofitability, as a check against sin. If what I'm doing right now is glorifying God, I rejoice. I carry on. If, if it's not glorifying God, bear, repent as necessary, redirect, begin again to walk in what glorifies Him. May that be what we're always seeking to do because we love Him because we are His. May God give us the grace to obey His command, to flee sexual immorality, and to glorify Him in our bodies. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know these are hard things. We know these are things that have great power. This kind of sin has great power, and we come to you needy, needing more grace needing grace for needing converting grace to become yours in the first place needing the grace to continually repent and live for your glory give us that grace now we pray help us to take jesus by faith again and again and again that we might be transformed into his lovely image and live for you in jesus name we pray amen